Welcome to this week's episode of Trillmix 2016. I'm Scripps politics reporter Miranda Green, and joining me today are Justin Green from the Independent Journal Review and a special host, Francesca Chambers, White House correspondent for the Daily Mail. She's filling in for Swin, who today is currently on the hill chasing around U2's Bono. What a rough life he lives up there. Uh, but Francesca, it's not too bad to have you fill in for him. So welcome to the show. Yes, thanks. This is great. It's nice to have another female voice on. You're going to have to really up your attitude here, Justin, because I feel like between Francesca and I. Oh, no. No, I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm well, so tired. You'll probably still be like, significantly I'm tired. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, I don't know any feeling but tired now. You know? Is that the definition of a campaign reporter? I think at this point, this is everybody. I was, like, reading some people's work the other day who I generally think are way better reporters than mine. And it was, <laughs> it was like, they give it up. short. So today we're going to talk about a mix of topics. Uh, and we'll have a guest on later onto the show to talk to us about numbers and polling. But first, let's talk about the Democrat side. Uh, Francesca typically covers the Dems. Uh, we're road warriors together <laughs> when we're on the campaign trail. And today, Francesca, you wrote a story about another Clinton and Sanders kind of brawl that's going on. We've seen a lot of these kind of creep up over the last couple of weeks, a lot of increased tension. And one of the ones, the one that you talked about specifically had to do with guns. Can you tell us about the story? Well, like you said, the tension has definitely increased between the two Democratic candidates as this campaign has lingered on a lot longer than Secretary Clinton probably thought that it would. And Bernie Sanders and her have been trading more barbs. And this time, as you said, it's about guns. And Bernie Sanders vote against a bill is at the heart of this that would have made gun manufacturers liable when their weapons were used in crimes. Now, Sanders says that he does not support this type of legislation because if the gun was purchased by by someone and then they use the gun to kill people, how is that the manufacturer's fault? However, Secretary Clinton has made this a centerpiece of her campaign against him in New York this week, she took that a step further and suggested that his home state of Vermont was responsible for the gun violence that's taking place in New York. And the way she gets to that is because there is the largest per capita amount of guns that are found at crime scenes. They come from Vermont. It's easy to cross borders, criminals, domestic abusers, traffickers, People who are dangerously mentally ill, they cross borders too. And sometimes they do it to get the guns they use. And the, I think the main point here is that Sanders was never the governor of Vermont per se. He was the senator and before that a congressman. So it's not like he specifically had anything to do with gun policy in Vermont. But the second thing is fact checkers have pointed out is that Vermont has a very small population. So per capita, that number would look very large. But if you looked at another state like California, for instance, or Florida, and uh, you actually looked at the number of guns that come into New York from those states, the number would actually be higher from other states. But she's purposefully using the per capita rate to make Vermont seem like it's bringing in a lot more guns than it is. 
and, and this topic of guns between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton has always been something that's distinguished them a little bit. I know that Bernie Sanders has a different stance when it comes to guns than she does. Um, in the past, he has been vocal about the right he to bear arms that he believes most people have. This is something that a lot of Vermonters also agree with. Uh, Hillary Clinton has been more vocal about the fact that there should be more controls, there should be more background checks. But what's interesting here, I think, is that it seems like by calling out Bernie Sanders on this this topic this week, she's kind of put her foot in her mouth, right? I mean, one of uh, Clinton's backers is actually Vermont's governor. Uh, and so he wasn't exactly too happy with her comments this week saying that Vermont is essentially responsible for the gun issue in New York State. Well, exactly. He said that it's not entirely accurate what she said without criticizing her or directly for that and then of course lobbed a insult back at the state of New York saying that they were responsible for bringing heroin into his state because the license plates that are bringing in the drugs have New York plates. Uh, That's sort of similar to what the governor of Maine said a, a few months back that spurred so much outrage when he said that I forget what the, the the names were, but it was like Smoochie <laughs> were coming up and having sex with white women in the state of Maine. And people went, I mean, understandably so, like, holy crap, what did he just say? But it is another instance of like a, a New England governor blaming New York for the ills of the state because it was specifically about heroin. Well, and I think that Vermont's governor was trying to to turn the argument back on Hillary Clinton specifically with what he said. And you mentioned that it seems like she put her foot in the mouth, her mouth. However, so far in this campaign, her arguments against Senator Sanders on gun violence have taken hold. Now, granted, polling shows that they aren't the most important thing in this race and his support for guns, while troubling to many Democrats, Democrats hasn't specifically warded them off from uh, supporting him, but it has come up time and time again throughout this campaign. And that's why she's back on the topic of guns right now as she tries to win New York, because on most issues, he is much more progressive and more liberal than she is. And she's trying to now win over that wing by saying, look, here's an issue where he sides with Republicans uh, on the the manufacturing of uh, the gun manufacturers and the immunity and, and trying to exploit that weakness and get some more of those progressives and liberals on her side, as you know. New York is a very liberal state, and without that group in New York, she might not be able to pull it off next week on Tuesday when New York votes. And obviously, this is just a single situation. New York is voting next week at the primary. But we have seen an increased number of, of, you may call it mudslinging, happening between the two candidates. If you recall, going back just a few months or, you know, at the beginning of the primary season, both candidates kind of vowed to not go there on many topics to try to stick it to the issues. But this is seeming a little bit unprofessional. I mean, maybe that's just my, my point of view on that. Well, compared to what? Compared to what's going on in the Republican race right now, Miranda? I mean, anything that's happened in this Democratic race isn't isn't nearly to the extent of anything that we've seen that, that's and happened they with Republicans prided this year. themselves on that, right? I mean, that's something they talk that first memorable CNN debate instance where they both kind of like yeah. gave themselves a high five on stage, talked about the fact well, that, that they were so different. Never realistic. It was never realistic, I think, for anyone to assume that as this race went on and as it got very very tight in terms of delegates that Senator Sanders 
and Secretary Clinton, for that matter, weren't going to have to engage in the types of attacks that they said that they wouldn't engage in because they have to find a way to distinguish themselves from the other one if they want to win this race. And Secretary Clinton says that it's Senator Sanders' fault. He's the one who's making the character attacks on her. However, she did suggest that he she may not have said that he was not qualified for the position of the presidency, but she did make many statements that suggested that he was unprepared and possibly not qualified, as she said that he hadn't done his homework and clearly didn't have proposals for a lot of the things that he said that he wanted to do. So do we think this is going to get worse? I mean, are we expecting that at this point civility is out the door and now we're realizing it is a race to the end? And especially looking to New York next week, I mean, I guess it seems like every campaign we're saying this, but could this be the make it or break it moment for the Democrats? I mean, is this is this going to be an all out brawl until next Tuesday? Well, I'm really excited for the debate on Thursday night because this will be the f- the first time that they've debated since it's gotten as heated as we were just saying. And it could turn into a situation where there's some pointing of some fingers and some yelling, you know, some excuse me's as we've heard and, and stop talking. I'm talking right now. So I think this may be the most entertaining Democratic debate that we've had so far. But it it, it will be an important one as well because – while there there is one more debate that's supposed to be scheduled for Democrats after this, if Sanders does not do well in New York, and that doesn't necessarily mean win, but if he does not do very well in New York, then it won't matter what happens in the rest of these contests moving forward. He's down by 250 pledged delegates to her. She's winning most of the superdelegates. He says that he he can win in California, but even with California, he's got to make up that deficit somewhere and the best way is New York and in five states that vote on April 26. So it sounds like we are going to have one hell of a show for us this Thursday and I guess we'll have to watch that. Uh, So now we're going to move on to our guest that we have on the line here. Sam Wang is a neuroscientist. Uh, He's a neuroscience professor at the Princeton University who dabbles in election forecasting. You know, some people play bridge, others play golf. Some people like to crunch numbers. And he's calling in today to talk to us about some of the polls that he's been looking at and the theories he has for the election going forward. Hi, Sam. Thanks for calling in. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's it's, uh, fun. Glad to be with you. So, Sam, you've been described by some as a numbers wizard uh, of such, and and you've been ca- compared to 538's Nate Silver. Um, there was an article in the past that I read that I think called both of your separate forecasting the Battle of Dweebs. <laughs> Is that an accurate <laughs> description? Uh, well, I certainly, uh, we've never met in person, and so if one criterion for a battle is being waged entirely online and through the inner tubes, then yes, it would be a battle of dweebs. Uh, I I like to think that I'm reasonably well socially adjusted. Um, I couldn't speak for him. (laughs) Well, you know, we're only talking via the airwaves, but I have to say that you sound like a very normal person, so I'll I'll vouch for you on that. I can keep that up for many minutes at a time. (laughs) So, um... Sam, you have forecasted in the past in previous elections in 2014, um, you did a lot of polling looking at the data and and basically came out saying that you believed that the Democrats were going to be able to hold on to the Senate in the midterms. Um, that ended up not being the case. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you, you know, before we get into your, your theories about how this election is going to turn out, you know, how much of that still stings and, you know, how much of that is kind of propelling the way you're crunching the numbers going forward? 
Sure. I, uh, I knew it wouldn't be a softball interview. So let's see. So um, the story there is, let's just make the broad statement and then narrow into the particular mistakes that I made. Uh, the broad statement that is true is that polls do a very good job of capturing the nationwide flavor of a race, whether it be a presidential race or whether it be, say, how a group of Senate races is going is to turn out. Uh, and then there are cases in which that is not true. So one case in which that's not true is that midterm elections uh, are elections with pretty low turnout, and so it's harder to be accurate. And so if you look in the several weeks before the election in 2014, what I was saying at that time was that uh, that the Senate was probably going to flip, or sorry, probably going to be uh, probably going to uh, go to the uh, Republican control. Um, and that specifically, uh, it was hard to say exactly what was going to happen because of a lot of uncertainty. And that was true. And so in the closing weeks of the campaign, uh, what I said was similar to what anybody would say. And the reason for that is that we were all working with the same data. Now, you're referring to something I said back in August of that campaign, and it is true that in August, I thought there was a good chance that uh, the Democrats would, um, would hold on to control. That was a mistake. And that comes from the fact that uh, that there is, in fact, a lot of movement that can happen in midterm elections. And at the time, I had not fully taken that into account. So, yeah, so from August to November of a midterm year, there are a lot of things that can happen with public opinion. That certainly happened in that case. And, uh, and there was a range of predictions that was made, and I was at the end of the range. Um, so that's a special case, midterm elections, where, as I said, there can be a lot of movement. Uh, polling accuracy is not so good in midterms. These are things that are known to polling nerds. And, uh, and of course, uh, yeah, it didn't turn out too well for me that year. I mean, moving forward off of that, Sam, I obviously am not trying to just, you know, hold you to that. Obviously, you know, numbers are a complicated beast, which is why so many of us shy away from it. And we rely on the experts like you to do the crunching. Um, and, and, you know, just looking at this year, when was it that you started seeing that the numbers were really in Donald Trump's favor. And uh, can you tell me yeah. a little bit about kind of the response you got from people when you did start talking about how that's what you were seeing? I mean, I'm sure that it was probably a little bit of shock. A few things. So I would say that anybody paying attention to polls in July or August would say what Nate Silver said back then, which is that candidates can come and go, and the odds are that somebody like Trump would be gone in a couple of months, the way that Herman Cain was, or the way that, that Rick Santorum more or less was, or the way that Michelle Bachman was. And the, there are several things that happened starting around November or so that suggested that there was more to that story. One was his numbers stayed up in a way that the other ones did not. And if you looked at just the numbers and you didn't look at his inflammatory statements, you didn't look at the actual things he said, if you just looked at what respondents to polls said, the graph looked more like Mitt Romney's graph than others. He, in other words, Trump went up, stayed up, and kept on up for months at a time. And so the first thing was that. The second thing was that if we look at polling data from January of previous election years uh, and look at how strong Trump was relative to his competitors and compared that with the historical record, very few Republican candidates in his position have failed to get the nomination. And in particular, he was looking as strong as, like I said, George W. Bush in 2000, or perhaps John McCain in 2008. And so just purely looking at the polling data without factoring in uh, our opinions about candidates, that kind of thing, the numbers were pretty clear. And it's, it's not that Trump will be the nominee. We still don't know that. But it's just that he's a far more serious contender, purely measured through opinion polls, 
than most people appreciated. And I think that just goes to show that, that there are a lot of things that we see when we look at the news and we, we watch these people on our screens. You know, we can't possibly believe that a guy like Trump could have any kind of chance. Well, that could be. But once we have hard polling numbers, uh, I think it's a good idea to at least listen and ask what are those numbers telling us. And so, yeah, so when I said this in January, it was, uh, it was data-based. Hi, Sam. This is Francesca. Hi. Hi. In, in your review of the data, what have you found in terms of why he has such staying power? You mentioned some of his statements that some have called inflammatory, and yet he continues to do so well, not just in, in polls, but in these elections. And so why do you feel that is, particularly when you have not just Democrats, but Republicans like Paul Ryan, who some were suggesting uh, he could possibly be a contender against against Trump? Why why do you think so? what he has to say resonates with, with so many people? Well, let me come at this in a slightly different direction. Um, there are certainly people who you could talk to who could talk about his appeal to people who didn't finish high school or people from economically depressed areas. But let me come at a different, a different way and say that the unspoken star of this year's nomination process on both sides, Democratic and Republican, is the rules that govern the process. And so Trump's support is, uh, is, has been for the last month around 40%, hasn't really moved up or down from that number. And so he's had this really fixed level of support that's less than, than a majority. And in the Republican system of nominations, whoever comes in first in a race typically gets either all the delegates or the great majority of delegates. And so there's this rewarding of whoever comes in number one, even if they don't get a majority. And that process seems to have been put in place originally to reduce dissension and to reduce the, the possibility of an acrimonious nomination fight if whoever's at number one, let's say it was Mitt Romney, whoever's at number one could get the nomination even without having a majority of support. So that was the Republicans' plan when they put those rules in place. And presumably they thought it was going to be somebody kind of normal, like Scott Walker or, 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 um, or Marco Rubio. What they got instead was Donald Trump. Now, if you look on the Democratic side, the Democratic side has representation that is more like proportional representation. And furthermore, the Democratic side lacks a fragmented field with lots of candidates. And so if you look at the support, Donald Trump's support is at about the same level percentage-wise in his party as Bernie Sanders on the Democratic side. And so at some level, Trump doesn't have that much support. What he has is 40 percent. It just so happens that the Republican field is quite broken up, and it so happens that they have rules in place that make it okay, uh, that lead to a nominee, even if the field is fragmented. So he benefits from rules, and as I said, the rules are really the star this year. Hey, Sam, this is Justin. I have a question, uh, I guess a little more back-looking. Um, the last few weeks we've seen new cycles of, you know, Donald Trump is getting smoked by Hillary Clinton in terms of favorability. Donald Trump is getting smoked by Hillary Clinton in terms of general election polls. Some of the pushback that we've seen the last week, 10 days or so, has been, well, so was Ronald Reagan in 1980. Um, and I'm just curious a little bit for your thoughts on how much of a chance candidates have to, historically, to recover from being deeply in the hole when it comes to favorability. Yeah, there, people, when they talk about upsets and reversals, often like to bring up the election of 1980 with Ronald Reagan against Jimmy Carter. If you, So I have a few things to say about that. Uh, one is that there is not as much movement in 1980 as people suppose, and it's probably worthwhile to go back to the Gallup data and, and to find out that there is not as much movement in Carter versus Reagan 
uh, as, as gets talked about. But the other thing to talk about is the fact that it is better not to cherry-pick extreme examples when making an argument, because let's say that the most extreme example was Reagan versus Carter in the last 10 presidential elections, and he came from behind. Let's just stipulate that all that is true. What that tells you is that, okay, well, maybe there's about a 1 in 10 chance that that's going to happen in any given year. So what I would encourage is to not cherry-pick, but to do a more broad and neutral look at all the data. And the more broad and neutral look goes something like this. When you look at April polls between the two major candidates, whether it be Clinton versus Trump, Reagan versus Carter, Romney versus Obama, whatever it might be, if you're this many months out from the election, April to, uh, to November, what's the typical amount of movement that happens? So the answer to that is the typical amount of movement that happens between now and the election is about six points or so. So sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Okay, so that's about how much movement there is. So, and that's looking across all races, not just the Reagan one, but, but all of them. All right, well, how far is Hillary up on uh, Trump right now? She's up on him by about eight or nine points. So, all right, so that means that if the race typically moves an average of six points, that means an a- on average we could expect that margin to be Hillary by two points up to Hillary by 14 points. So seemingly what that suggests is that Hillary's got an edge on Trump. Now, the other thing is that, as you mentioned, the favorability numbers for Trump are like super bad, like minus 30. So that means that something like 35% of Americans approve of him and 65% do not approve of him. And there has never been anybody in the history of, um, of that question being asked of voters. Nobody with numbers that low has ever been elected president. Right. right. So, I mean, Reagan was five points underwater at this point. Yeah. And, and so it's fairly cool. spickle. Look, Hillary is something like, if I recall correctly, Hillary Clinton is something like 10 points underwater right now. So 10 points is not great, but people with numbers like that have been elected president before. And, uh, and minus 10 is, um, I think anybody who knows any math at all knows that minus 10 actually is larger than minus 30. Well, Sam, this is Francesca again. Do you have any bold predictions about the general election that you'd like to share with us, regardless of whether it would be Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump or even Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump and likewise with Ted Cruz? Yeah, I mean, Sam, I also just, uh, this is Miranda, I read on your blog, uh, this was back in March, you wrote something like, you don't think it's going to be a very big news month, you pretty much think that the election had already been settled, so can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, how you came to those conclusions, you think this is this is the end, or, you know, going on from there? Well, let's see, so um, I think it would be very, very surprising for Sanders to pull it out and become the de- Democratic nominee. Uh, his numbers nationally, uh, so I, people talk about winning or losing New York or winning or losing uh, California. On the Democratic side, that's actually not the appropriate way to think about it at all, because delegates are proportional. And it's more appropriate to say, okay, how much would Sanders' support have to swing for him to pull it out of the fire? And he would have to end up being something like uh, 15 points up on Hillary Clinton in national opinion polls for him to have a shot at getting a majority of delegates. And that is really unlikely. And so I would say that that the probability of Sanders being the nominee at this point, based on the way that the Democratic elections are run, um, less than 5%. So I think it's really unlikely that Sanders is going to get the nomination. Uh, Republican side, uh, less clear. If, uh, If Trump ends up getting a majority of pledged delegates, he's going to be just over the top, and we're going to be waiting until June 7th. And I do think that we're going to be basically watching both sides' races until June 7th because enough delegates get handed out on June 7th in California and other states that we're going to have to uh, 
you know, wait until then to be really sure. Hey, Sam, I have one final question for you, and this is kind of a fun question. Uh, One of the words that we hear used a lot and we have in the last couple months is the word momentum. We heard it used for Marco Rubio. We've heard it used for Bernie Sanders. And just recently with the last race, we heard it used for Ted Cruz. And as a numbers guy, I want to get your opinion on, on the word and if you think it's actually a realistic word. I think that in the context of politics, momentum is mostly a crock. Uh, I come out of physics and uh, as a background, and and for us, physics is you know mass or sorry, momentum is mass times velocity. Now, I, I know that's really dweeby, but stay with me for a second here. Um, it is really hard to tell when looking at a single primary race whether a candidate is trending up or down, and the reason for that is that the states vary so much from one another, and so. Under most circumstances, it is super hard to tell whether a candidate is trending up or down from one or even two data points. My take on the word momentum is that it apparently seems to mean I, as a journalist, am excited about writing about this person. And I got a real thrill at that rally, or I just saw Cruz really rocking in Wisconsin. And because I saw that, I'm going to write about this, and I'm going to express my feeling by using the word momentum. So that's what I think momentum is. I think it's mostly a way to express enthusiasm on the part of the person doing the writing. It's a nice frilly word that kind of makes it seem like there's something there that, you know, the numbers aren't supporting. If you see the word momentum in a piece of political reportage, I think there's a pretty good chance you should be careful and look at everything else in the article and not necessarily buy into the momentum concept. I feel like that's a word that might end up being the word that killed the Republican Party this year. <laughs> momentum. Huh. Trump momentum. Cruise momentum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think it's it's the overused word of 2016. Um, Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show with us. We really appreciate you giving us uh, the time and, and all the intellect you have. I definitely do not crunch the numbers myself. I don't think any of us here do. So we really appreciate your work. Oh, it was fun. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, well, we're going to move on to the other party for the last segment. Uh, Donald Trump recently had an article written about his charitable giving. Somebody wrote uh, an article about Donald Trump? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's shocking, right? It's like, how do, you, how do you keep track of all the different stories that are coming out? But the Washington Post uh, got a hold of Donald Trump's charitable giving over the last five years, or at least what his, his campaign said was charitable giving that he had doled out over the last five years. And they released all thousands of pages of this. And um, there was something kind of interesting about the the items listed on his uh, reports once you kind of delved into them. And the main concept being that Donald Trump is really good at giving out free golfing at his various resorts, but not so much money. Sure. Uh, I, I want to lead in the segment just a little bit by saying one of the biggest mysteries of this entire campaign cycle has been like, how rich is Donald Trump? Because I don't need anybody's money. It's nice. I don't need anybody's money. I'm using my own money. I'm not using the lobbyists. I'm not using donors. I don't care. I'm really rich. I'll show you that in a second. (laughs) But it's been pretty tricky to figure out how wealthy he actually is. And maybe this is like a little bit of splitting hairs. But there's been a few like, I think, signposts that suggest that Donald Trump's wealth is perhaps not as advertised. And I think that you can look back at, for instance, his divorce from his first wife, Ivana, who she said she basically happily settled for like a number that was significantly smaller than you would suspect from a divorce from a billionaire. I think it was like 13 or $14 million. You can go and look at his, um, at his taxes, which have been very vague. 
uh, you can go and look at his um, well at the returns he's gotten on his buildings, uh, which have been interesting. But I think the Washington Post story that came out this week is most interesting because it shows that what Donald Trump is very, very good at is funneling charitable giving, giving one, through his businesses, uh, and two, um, using his foundation to raise money from his friends and to give out basically in his own name. I think there are a lot of red flags that we saw from this this report. I mean, the, one of the biggest red flags is that all of the charitable giving listed was through his foundation, not actually through himself. Uh, the fact that none of it was dollar amounts, and that a lot of the the benefactors of this so 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 called charitable giving were actually either employees or other resorts, or even Serena Williams, the tennis star. She needed the help, I'm sure. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I mean, when I think of giving back to the community, I don't really think she's high on my list, but maybe I'm just, you know, one of the little people. I, I don't want to sound like a, a Trump defender here. I'm not, I'm not on anybody's it's side. Good to, I'm not on anybody's side here. Find those, so. but, I, but I have to jump in and say that I think it's a little bit unfair to to say that in giving free golf or giving out land or anything like that isn't charitable giving and that there's no monetary amount tied to that because there is a monetary amount tied to that. It's money that he would have otherwise received from his business and would have otherwise went into his pocket if he he didn't give that out. So I think that there is some monetary value and everything that you said is, is, is totally, you know, otherwise totally fair, but, but I, I tend to think that if you have a business and you you give out services for free, you're losing money off of that. All right, but Francesca, can we not say that that's a little bit sketchy? I don't know if, I don't know if it's sketchy. Like the, the 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 quick pushback I give to you is, for instance, that like a hotel room exists whether or not you monetize it, and that I would suspect a lot of the free hotel stays that Trump gave away were hotels that he probably wasn't actually like. Those rooms were probably not being sold already. I mean, you can say the same thing about the golf rooms. But the golf, sure. Like, the golf course is probably not consistently booked. Well, that's true. So perhaps there is a value to it. But I'm guessing that he assigned the highest possible value in terms of charitable giving to things that perhaps would not otherwise be sold. I do think he – I mean, the report suggests that he's he's given away over $100 million in recent years. And that's a – that is more money than I will ever see in my entire lifetime. So it's difficult to say that – he and his foundation have not been personally very generous. It just does, I think the big thing that it signals to me is that he is perhaps less flush in terms of liquid cash than you would otherwise suggest. And that would make sense for someone, most of whose um, well, fortune is in land, is in real estate, is in things that are tough to offload and perhaps in, in which you are frequently fairly leveraged in terms of debt to manage. So it has been rather interesting to watch someone who, mind you, if he becomes the president of the United States, will have to hand over the bulk of this fortune. Uh, It's interesting to watch someone like that um, perhaps start to think to themselves, oh, crap, like this thing that I've managed for many years might be ran by someone else. And he has, considering that he has been rather notorious for keeping a a tight grip on his own business, it would be a very interesting transition to witness. And, and as Justin, as you mentioned, I think this this comes back to it's it's not that the charitable giving is not enough, but it's that the way Donald Trump has talked about his own personal fortune has almost been a stump speech. And it's been 
something that many people I've talked to on the campaign show have references for why they're voting for him, that he's this billionaire, he, he's made his own money, they want a president that can do the same thing, and yet we're not really seeing those numbers. So it's kind of like he's, you know, he, there's something, I think shady is the word I would use here, there's just something not very forthright about what we're seeing with his charitable giving and the fact that he's supposedly made out of billions and billions of dollars, and yet we're not seeing any of those. I mean, I think every rich person's shady, so I don't know if there's anything uniquely like shady about that. Speaking of shady, uh, we witnessed this week that Hillary Clinton has hinted at a general election attack line against Donald Trump, which is that she handed that he has also given paid speeches to Goldman Sachs and that he is being withholding on that. She said that in a New York Daily News um, sorry, editorial board interview, and I asked the, the campaign about that, and they were fairly tight-lipped, I think understandably so, because it kind of came out of nowhere. She's she's used. What was the quote exactly? Well, but she has used for a long time that like I'll release my transcripts when mm-hmm. everyone else does them. But she also said that like some of the people in the campaign who are not Bernie Sanders have also <laughs> given he's released these paid all of speeches. his Justin, which is none. Right. I mean, oh yeah, Bernie Sanders speaking to like that would be the scoop of a lifetime. Everyone is so forthright in this campaign. <laughs> if someone could find out that Bernie Sanders had given like a hundred thousand dollars speech to Goldman Sachs, that would be the <laughs> That'd most be priceless it. thing of all time. <laughs> but it is interesting to see her foreshadow kind of throwing this back in his face like one of those where he said look at this person who is connected to the people who screw you over well if that person's been doing it too it's a little bit more of an interesting line i think that's something that we will see i don't know if she'll repeat the line i've said a google alert for it to be honest with you (laughs) but you're gonna wake up one morning you're like yes it will be a very interesting thing if some of trump's populist attack lines start to be utilized against him particularly in a general election mode where he is much more vulnerable to the opinions, for instance, of women and minorities. So it was just something to watch out for. All right. So we should all set our Google alerts, obviously. <laughs> no, no, no. Give that one to me. That's mine. <laughs> Justin has to get the, uh, the exclusive I want the, that, I want the we'll exclusive second scoop. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, Francesca, it was great having you as a guest host. I'm sure Swin won't be happy to hear that we had a great time without him. But, yeah, let's um, kick Swin off. <laughs> Please come back in the future. Yes, thanks for letting me nerd out over polling with you. (laughs) Have a great week, everyone. Thank you very much. And please subscribe to the podcast and rate it so that I sound cool to my mom. (laughs) Thanks, Miranda. Tromix 2016 is a production of Scripps News out of our Washington, D.C. Bureau. The show is produced by Eric Krupke. You can follow us at Twitter at TrailMix2016. We post a lot of extra little tidbits and things we talk about on the show there. You can also follow me at my Twitter handle, Miranda C. Green. And make sure to rate us on iTunes. Any extra stars or any extra little ratings go a long way. Thanks for listening. This is this is for you, uh, Mrs. Green. She's a saint. She's put up with me for 27 years. You know, Mrs. Green is also like my mom, so like it's a shout out to both our families. <laughs>